Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a, it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com dot com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's better help com slash sacred text. Hi, everybody. Instead of a regular episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, today we are dropping the very first episode of our season of Live from Pemberley, which is season four of Hot and Bothered, in which we are treating Pride and Prejudice as a sacred text. I mean, normally, if someone were to tell me that my weekly episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text was being replaced by something else, I would be either incensed or mortified, probably both. But (laughs) if the person was you telling me that I got to hear Live from Pemberley instead and hear your brilliant reflections upon Pride and Prejudice as a sacred text, that mortification and anger would transform into joy. And enthusiasm. <laughs> well, and it's not just me. Even better, it's me and my dear friend, the brilliant journalist Lauren Sandler. And Lauren, as you know, Matt, and as I'm sure our listeners know because she's been a guest on Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, is just one of the most socially just-minded journalists out there doing incredible work. And her brain on this text is just an absolute delight. So what you're going to hear today is Lauren and I discussing chapters one and two of Pride and Prejudice. We are going to do a close reading of the sentence, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. We are going to talk to Tara Menon, one of the most brilliant Jane Austen scholars out there. We're really excited to share this episode with you. And if you like it, we hope that you subscribe to Hot and Bothered and join us as we spend the next year reading Pride and Prejudice. I can't wait to hear this episode. I can't wait to hear the whole series. Lauren Sandler is a national treasure. Colette started reading her book like three days ago and cannot put it down. She says she's brilliant and committed and just and passionate. And I know it's going to be a great conversation. Well, everybody, we hope that you enjoy this episode. And Matt and I will be back next week to talk about Harry Potter. This novel starts with one of the most famous lines in all of literature. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. But it also starts with gossip. Mr. Bingley has moved to town, folks, and he's single and rich. He's renting a house not far from the Bennets. The Bennets, the family Pride and Prejudice orients itself around. The Bennets are also a family consisting of two parents, five single daughters, and no sons. Mrs. Bennet has a job to do, and it is to marry off all five of her daughters as well as she can. So this news of their new rich neighbor is big. 
All that happens in chapters one and two of Pride and Prejudice is that Mrs. Bennett tells Mr. Bennett the news of their new neighbor. She implores him to go visit Mr. Bingley so that the five Bennett daughters will have a chance at snagging him. Mr. Bennett says he won't, but then he does. That's all that happens. But in typical Austin fashion, each sentence is like an ant carrying 10 times its own weight. Here is Claudia Johnson, Murray Professor of English at Princeton University. The thing about Austin is she doesn't twist just once. Like, that's a universal truth, but hey, it isn't. She twists again. And hey, wait a minute, (laughs) maybe it is. And I think that's one reason we can read her so often with pleasure. There's always more of a twist that you never got the first time. That you can't take it all in at once, even though it seems small you know, in short, and you can read it all, you know, in a short time, but yet you can never really grasp it all. The first page of the novel includes a discussion of money, marriage, and manners. In the first two chapters, a mere four pages, we get a sense of Mr. and Mrs. Bennett's marriage and what kind of parents they are to their five daughters. We even get an inkling of the five girls, Jane, beautiful, Lizzie, clever, Mary, serious. Lydia, tall and fun. Kitty, well, Kitty coughs. Mrs. Bennett's anxiety about whether or not her husband will go and meet Mr. Bingley is fair. They live in a small town, so wealthy single men are thin on the ground. The only possible financial future for the Bennett sisters is marriage. Pride and Prejudice is a novel about love and marriage, but it is also very much a novel about money. Here is Elsie Mitchie, assistant professor of English at Louisiana State University. Prior to the 18th century, in England at least, almost all the wealth was located in land. It was in estates. But people are starting to make money through empire. They're starting to make money in commerce, and they're starting to make big money. They're making money in selling things. The middle class is rising. People are buying things. And Austen's novels are full of that. I mean, Pride and Prejudice, it's huge that the Bingley's money comes from trade and not from land, right? And that they're becoming landed. I mean, Charlotte's family, right? They also, the money is from trade and then they bought an estate. The Bennets are in the middle of these two classes. Mr. Bennett is landed, but Mrs. Bennett is not. Their financial position is precarious, especially once Mr. Bennett dies. So when Mr. Bingley comes to town, this isn't about romance, but it's business. And Mrs. Bennett is unable to make the introductions herself. As a woman, it is improper to welcome her neighbor. So when Mr. Bennett pretends he won't go and meet Mr. Bingley, Mrs. Bennett has no recourse. So in these first four pages, we also get a lesson about power dynamics and patriarchy. Here is Elsie Mitchie again. So I think it's very important to Austin, and this comes back to the question about money, to accurately represent the structures that constrain people's behavior. So she's almost like an anthropologist of her moment, right? You go back and you and you read Pride and Prejudice and you feel the world she's living in. Now, I mean, Raymond Williams has famously said, and I think this is accurate, that within the gates of the estate and everything, she's absolutely accurate economically. But she refuses to look outside those gates. Like, well, you don't see the people who are laboring on her estates almost at all. So within the range of middle to upper class, her novels to me are brilliant because they're like an anatomy of all the different places you can think of how many different places there are on that scale, right? The Lucases, Mrs. Phillips, the Gardeners, right? I mean, and I don't know anybody else who who is as brilliant at that kind of differentiation, but that's not the stance of someone who goes, oh, here's patriarchy. It's a big thing glump and I'm going to oppose it, which is like what Mary Wollstonecraft does. She's not, she's not that. She's an anatomist, I think. I agree with Professor Mitchie that Austin's feminism is subtle and exacting. I also obviously agree with the fact that within Pride and Prejudice, our gaze is only directed toward the upstairs and the upper crust. But I think that Austin, by limiting the scope of what she is dissecting, 
allows for a more precise rendering and critique. Mr. Bennett is a loving father in many ways. He isn't a drunk and isn't abusive. He's outright funny. But he holds all of the power in this family. The six women in his life cannot so much as go welcome a neighbor without his participation, and he only participates on his own terms. The chapter ends with how these girls must spend most of their time, wondering aloud when something is going to happen to them and what they can do to control the outcome. The answer to the latter question is very little. So even Mr. Bennett's favorite, the clever Lizzie, sits around lacing bonnets and gossiping. Since that is just about all they're allowed to do, even in terms of trying to craft their own futures. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Lauren Sandler. And this is Live from Pemberley from Hot and Bothered. Lauren, we have one thing we want to warn everybody about before we really launch in, which is just that we are going to be spoiling the book as we go along. In Jane Eyre, there's this big twist that if you don't know, feels really important for us to withhold. Whereas Pride and Prejudice, we're just going to talk about the whole thing as we go. And so we just want to warn you all about that. We're going to be talking about the alien invasion 80 pages before it happens, you know? I can't wait till we get to the vampire part. So Lauren, I can't believe we're here. I'm so excited we're talking about Pride and Prejudice. Me too. And what do you have to teach us today, Professor Sandler? Well, okay, so this feels a little nitty gritty. It's not the sexiest thing to kick us off with, but it really matters, I think, which is like, let's get into the money because this is something that Austin does, is known for doing, and certainly hits hard time and time again in Pride and Prejudice, which is she tells us exactly how much money everyone has, <laughs> where it comes from, <laughs> what it's worth. I mean, it's like you would never, ever have these conversations in mixed company, but Austin does it, right? What she's telling us here is that Bingley has four or 5,000 pounds to live on a year. For perspective, a farm laborer would make 15 to 20 pounds a year, at most 45 pounds a year. A lawyer, considered very successful, would be making about 450 a year. Austin herself, after her father's death, lived with her mother and sister on a total of 460 pounds a year. She earned a total of 684 pounds from all of her books in her entire lifetime. So compare that to Bingley and his four or 5,000 pounds a year. It's a pretty penny and it matters. And it matters in part, as you've told us, because we are going to have the Bennett sisters be fairly destitute upon their father's death. And so finding someone who could take care of them, at least to one of them, this is a really, really significant thing. So the question then becomes, okay, where is this money coming from? And something about Bingley, which is really interesting, and we'll certainly get into this, I think, over the whole season, is that his money is just the interest from government bonds, which is how inheritance was passed if it wasn't being passed through land. Something that we learn about Bingley very, very quickly is that he has no land, right? You were talking about this, the difference between landedness and just like getting that cash. And so that's what we know is that his father probably left him about a hundred thousand pounds and he gets that four percent interest like all of these men who we're going to meet. So I want to put all of that on the table for us discussing this book, that, you know, not only are we talking about romance, we are talking about business, we're talking about money. And when we talk about money, we need to talk about where the money comes from. Yeah. Well, and I mean, what's so exciting about Bingley or the prospect of this young man with so much money to Mrs. Bennett, I would imagine, isn't just that he would protect one of the daughters, but with that much money, he could save the whole family if ruin comes, right? If Mr. Bennett dies and the girls are all left without a place to live and with no money, right? This is like a holy grail of a man that 
starts off this novel, right? Bingley is the beginning of the novel. The Bennets have been existing and Mrs. Bennet has been worried about marrying off her kids for a long time, but Bingley has come and therefore the potential for safety, the potential for livelihoods has arrived. And it's even the potential for real wealth. I mean, other than Darcy, Bingley is pretty much the wealthiest of any of Austen's characters, which, you know, we'll see how much more wealthy Darcy is, which really, you know, Darcy's like in that gazillionaire territory. But Bingley, according to Austen's scholars, is about as far up there as you get. It's so interesting, right? Because everything we've been talking about so far speaks to how high the stakes are for Mr. Bingley moving into the neighborhood. It really matters. It materially matters. It culturally matters. Mrs. Bennett can finally not only maybe marry off one of her daughters, protect herself and all the daughters because this rich man has lived is moving next door. And so it's like stakes, stakes, stakes. And yet this famous, famous opening line is to a large extent mocking Mrs. Bennett. And, you know, Claudia Johnson just said to us in the opening part of the episode that, yes, that sentence is super twisty and turny and has many meanings. But the main one, the obvious reading is, this is not a truth universally acknowledged. This man is not moving to the neighborhood because he is in want of a wife. And Mrs. Bennett is one of these overbearing mamas who is meddling. So let's, let's read this sentence one more time. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. So I think it is really interesting that you're attributing it to Mrs. Bennett, and I agree with it, but Austin has chosen not to make it a quote. We have so much of Mrs. Bennett's direct voice in this chapter. Indeed, that's the bulk of the first chapter, practically, is Mrs. Bennett's chattering. Austin could have begun with a quote, or she could have begun with a line that leads into a quote, and instead, this is delivered as a statement, which then makes you think, who is this narrator? I find myself absolutely fascinated by what Austin is doing with this narrator's voice because she she begins with Mrs. Bennett in so many ways and not with Lizzie. Like it's Lizzie who we are going to internalize through the majority of this book. Lizzie's off trimming her hat. You know, we have Mrs. Bennett's voice not just in our ear in dialogue, but also in this characterization. And it's it's such an interesting place to start with this narrator's voice. I wonder, though, what you think that readers take from it, what you take from it, and why it is that this, out of all of the incredible first lines of literature, is one of a handful that we carry with us in this incredibly iconic way. Yeah. I mean, first of all, it's so funny. It's such a funny line. I do think for the most part, it is an out-of-character line for the way that the narrator talks to us for the rest of the book. I think that for the rest of the novel, when the narrator sort of makes a wry observation, it is very clear who the butt of the joke is or what the butt of the joke is. And yet for this, right, I'm not totally clear who this is making fun of because it obviously is not just Mrs. Bennett who acts this way. It's universally acknowledged that, like, this is how we are to treat single men in possessions of good fortunes as if they're in want of a wife. Like this is a a cultural necessity. And so I'm not sure who the butt of this joke is. Is it society in which all of our hopes are pinned onto these men? Like, I don't know who's being made fun of. Whereas throughout the rest of the novel, like line for line, you know who it is that she's attacking. Well, I do love the notion that it's society, and it does almost feel like a way to set up the entire book, right? That, of course, these men need nothing. They want for nothing. They don't need wives. They can come and go however they please. They can move in and out of Netherfield. They can choose who they want to insult or dance with at a ball. And entire families' futures hang on those flighty little threads. You know, I, I think that perhaps what Austin is doing here is sort of saying, 
the whole way that things are organized here requires a way of tricking the mind, of frothing oneself up, because this is the absurd system that we all have to participate in. I'm not saying that she's necessarily making a thesis statement about the feminist tract that she's about to set forth, because as we know, it's not that simple for her. But I do think that she must see all of this as, you know, absurd and humiliating in many ways. Right. And so what is in part being said by this sentence is that all of the people in this novel buy into this and they buy into the idea that it is men who have the power and the way to exist in this world and function well is by becoming the wife. Right. The opening line of this is not, boy, did it frustrate Lizzie Bennett that the only way she could make a living was as a wife. This is not going to be a book that is questioning this truth or talk about the oppressiveness of it, whereas other novels will. But in this book, to some extent, Austin is saying these are characters who just take the system for granted and are going to play within it. I would also say that it does seem to announce that the narrator is a woman. Because if we think about the men in this novel, none of these men, aside from Mr. Collins, who we will get to... (laughs) And that will be fun when we do. (laughs) There's truly, you know, essentially one single man in the entire novel who cares a whit about marriage, who seems intent on finding a wife. You know, the men from Mr. Bennett on down through Darcy, you name it. I mean, the people who we spend our attentions on don't care at all about marriage because they don't have to. And so I think that this declaration feels like it, it is announcing that we have a female narrator. Not only do we have a female author, we have a female narrator, and that that is going to tell us a very different story from a very different place, whether or not it is one which is mocking and ironic, or as it shifts, one which is clever and sympathetic. But I think that it's also interesting in terms of the titles that that the book holds, right? I wonder if there's some pride and some prejudice in this statement as well. Some prejudice about who we think men are, even if that is wrong, or some pride that, of course, women must be as necessary as the men are. If there's something in here that feels mm. like this is how women lie to themselves because they have to, and what do we make of that? Mm-hmm. But I think everyone is indicted, Lauren, because the women are right. These men, whether or not they know it, they are looking for wives, right? Bingley does not come to town looking for a wife, but he meets Jane and that's it. He's a goner. And Darcy does not come to town looking for a wife, but he sure meets Lizzie. Wickham doesn't come to town looking for a wife, right? But like again and again, it's whether or not they know it, those idiots Frickin' need a wife. So it's so interesting because it, it feels like they're not looking for wives and then they fall in love with individuals. You know, you get this feeling that, oh, Lizzie isn't just going to be a wife. She's Lizzie. That's the point. Bingley isn't looking for love, but he falls head over heels in spite of himself. And I think that there's this tension between what it means to be a generic wife and what it means mm-hmm. to be adored as an individual. And I think that that element is very, very present through the whole book, that we have these these women who, who don't just want to be wives. And in fact, as we'll see again with Mr. Collins, when someone does choose to be a wife as a wife and not as someone who's being cherished for her individuality, chosen for her individuality, that is something that's just anathema to Lizzie. And I think that there's some element of Mrs. Bennett wanting to marry off her daughters, which turns them into generic wives in a way that feels just maddening to us because we aren't necessarily seeing the necessity of it as business. We want to feel the love of an individual. I think that we're really invited to judge both Mr. and Mrs. Bennett in these chapters because... To Mrs. Bennett, you want to be like, okay, you know he's rich and single. You don't know if he's 93 years old. You don't know if he is abusive, right? Like, you don't know anything about him, really? You just are like, great, he can marry one of our girls. He's rich and near. 
But then Mr. Bennett not even being willing to go and look, right? You're like, what are you doing? This could be a really good opportunity. And so I think that what's so interesting is that, you know, one of the questions that we have about this novel is who is it that the book finds ridiculous? Because I think that this is, to your point about the narrator, it's a very judgmental book. It's judgmental of its characters, I think, in a really lovely and clarifying way. It holds characters to a high standard. It's also where so much of the comedy comes from. It's why I think this book is so delicious is because it takes no prisoners. But I really do think that Mrs. Bennett is ridiculous for being like, a man has a penis, no wedding ring, and a fortune. One of our daughters should marry him. Like, that is ridiculous. And Mr. Bennett pretending like this isn't a big deal at all is also being ridiculous. So it's interesting because at this point in the book, we don't understand the desperation of this family. We don't know why it is that it is so important that these girls get married off. And so, frankly, Mrs. Bennett does sound ridiculous, just sort of flapping her feathers and, and tittering on about this lone man who shows up in town. And so... We will get to a point, I think, where Mr. Bennett becomes more and more of a problem. But for me as a reader, I really start feeling Mr. Bennett's annoyance and affectionate annoyance with his wife. And then in the second chapter, when it turns out that he did go visit Mr. Bingley and has been putting on this whole act about it, I know this is something that infuriates a lot of people, but it is also the sort of teasing humor that appeals to me so often. And so time and again, even when I know where the book is going, I read these two chapters and I feel this incredible affection for him. And I feel affection for the fact that he prefers his clever daughter. So he seems far less ridiculous to me here, whereas Mrs. Bennett is just this sort of clucking woman who I so often feel allergic to. And yet this notion that marrying her daughters off is her business is not in the end an insult in any way. It is cold, hard reality. And I think that there is a true feminist reading of her character is the only one who can see through this and know what the bottom line is. Yeah. I mean, I definitely the first several times I read the book, I was like all about Mr. Bennett. But this The second chapter, he just starts to irk me earlier and earlier, I think. You know, I I agree with you that he sort of gets through chapter one unscathed. But already by chapter two, I'm like, you know, pretending for your own amusement that you haven't done something that your wife wants you to do, that she cannot do on her own, that's not teasing. It feels mean to me. I I don't disagree with you in my mind. I know that it's mean. Her lack of agency here is terrifying, honestly. Like this entire system of manners. I mean, it's 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 completely dehumanizing. And I agree with you when I think about it, which it's my job to do when I'm reading. I need to be thinking as well as just feeling and enjoying, but I still find such pleasure in his way about it. And I know, I know that that's not right. I know that that's a problem. I also know that this is the love language of my family and almost every, Uh every family I've ever loved, right? Is like these sort of elaborate pranks and ways of withholding information as a way of teasing and then mocking someone for their desires and yet giving them what they need and what they want in the end. And you can see that as abuse, or if it's metered out in a slightly different way, I think you can see it as charm and affection. Unfortunately, the lesser your agency is, the more abusive it is. And the greater your agency is, the more charming it is. And as we learn, that balance is really off. Right. And I think that you see all of that in Mrs. Bennett's reaction. There isn't a moment where she's like, oh, you jerk. Instead, it's this gratitude and this like genuflecting of like, girls, we're so lucky to have a man like your father, right? We're thanking Mr. Bennett for his generosity when really this is his job. He's the head of the house. You go next door and you welcome the neighbors so that your wives and daughters can have relationships with him. And the fact that he's created a situation in which they feel grateful for him simply completing his duty, I think speaks 
to the ways that he's in no way trying to create a sense of equality in this house. He likes having this power. So, I mean, we will talk about this, I'm sure. I don't like Mrs. Bennett. (laughs) I know that she's right. I think that there are massive arguments for her, which I will make on this podcast. (laughs) And yet I can't stand how she does it. I don't like her manner. I don't like how she expresses things. Well, she's mortifying. Oh, oh, it's the worst. And obviously this is a huge theme in this book, which we will be opening up and discussing, you know, is when people behave a certain way, are we permitted to judge them for it? Totally. Whether that is because they seem uncouth in some way or they seem hard in some way because there may be some agenda that they put forth or there may be something that just is outside of our taste. Right. And then how much of that taste is about class? How much of class is about manners? How much of our own prejudices get peaked by our relationship to these people? I mean, am I having an anti-feminist and classist response to Mrs. Ben? it because I can't stand how she's behaving. Why is it that we will prefer Lizzie, so many of us, in all of these different ways? Is that a form of snobbery? I think that that's just so much of what we will be digging into here, in part because this is what Austin has frankly written this book about. This is what the whole love story hangs on, is whether people can get over this crap enough, and frankly, whether they should. Yeah. And there are moments in which manners, being well-mannered, is synonymous with goodness in the novel. And then there are other moments where people are very well-mannered and yet Mm -hmm, not mm -hmm. good at all, right? And this question of ridiculousness and power are so interesting in the novel because often the way that someone loses their power is by being ridiculous in the eyes of others. And so like like part of what I want from Mrs. Bennett is it's like, just shut up a little because you are correct. And so play this well, and then you will be morally virtuous and everyone can see it. You're getting in your own way by being essentially like not cool, right? Like by not being mannered about it. And yet, yeah, I feel for her so much. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app, and when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. The other place, though, that I really saw Power Lauren, and I never, ever noticed this until we are thinking about power and reading this chapter, is the first time we meet Lizzie, she is trimming a bonnet with lace. 
If you would have asked me when we meet Lizzie, what is she doing? I would have told you she was reading a book. That is just the visual I have in my head is that she's the smart one. She's the clever one. She's the fun one. But she's trimming a bonnet. And to me, all of these things are like rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic of like, I want to find a husband. I want the best husband I can get. And so I'm going to try a new lace on my bonnet because there's nothing else I can do to address this. I can't even introduce myself to someone. The next ball isn't for two weeks. I have two whole weeks. And it's not like I can send out another resume or call another reference or do another informational interview. What I can do is trim my bonnet in a way that I think might catch the eye of a person who appreciates my lace taste. And I think there's also this element of like, yeah, she's just a girl. And girls who are just a girl kind of girls can also be the really smart and clever one. And what's doubly interesting is we see Mary and are introduced to Mary as a reader who can't even respond to her father when he asks her a direct question. You know, we will discuss Mary as we move forward because I know we are all such Mary defenders, but I do find there's something about Mary in this introduction to her kind of devastating because I want the narrator to have a little bit more hope (laughs) for Mary than she allows us to see initially. But I can't help but think like, yes, you live in this world that you don't relate to, Mary, and where you find solace and company is in your books and not in this frippery and chattering and these family dynamics. You just want to escape it in your pages. And I feel you, girl. I agree. I also like a pretty bonnet. So, you know, totally. maybe we can have it all. (laughs) I mean, the other thing that I feel for Mary in this moment is I feel like this is something we talked about a lot with Jane Eyre. I feel like her dad is acting like that guy at a bar that's like, hey, impress me. He has just said, I want to put in a good word for my Lizzie. She's the clever one. And then it's whatever it is, a day or two later. What say you, Mary? For you are a young lady of deep reflection, I know, and read great books and make extracts. And it says Mary wished to say something sensible, but knew not how. I mean, obviously that's funny that she doesn't know how to say anything sensible, but you also get the feeling that she wants to say something to impress her dad. And his is like, I don't know what's going to impress you. And I was just put on the spot. Well, also this word sensible. I mean, he he's not a sensible man and this is not a sensible circumstance. And what she wants to do is say something which is entirely outside the lingua franca of her situation or her family. And that's painful too, to feel like you, you speak a different language or rather you would like to, but you haven't been taught it because it's not the language of your family. Yeah. I mean, and it almost feels like he's mocking her love of great books, right? He's like, you must be smart. You love to read great books. Tell me, what have they taught you? Right? It's like somebody like mocking the freshman who's chosen a philosophy major. It's like, oh, yeah? Well, tell me, how would you apply your philosophy to the financial market? Does philosophy write a check? And it's like, I get it. I get it, too. We both really get it. <laughs> I'm so, I, I just find Mr. Bennett... He's just mean to everyone but Lizzie. Even the, like, kitty, you can now cough as much as you like. Like, that's making fun of both Kitty and Mrs. Bennett. Of course, it's ridiculous that Mrs. Bennett was like, Kitty, stop coughing. It's wrecking my nerves. Although that feeling, I think, is a real one. I relate to that one, too. (laughs) I totally relate to the, like, oh, my God, you need to stop making that noise, right? These people on rainy days, and it rains in England a lot, have nowhere to go and nothing to do but sit in a room with each other. I swear to you, my sniffling at one point almost broke up my relationship with Peter, and I didn't blame him. And as we'll discuss, another major theme in this book is what it means to be stuck in a family that you don't really like. And man, they were really stuck together. But thinking about power and thinking about the favoritism of Lizzie, I'm sitting here thinking about like how, how significant being a parent's favorite can be psychologically. But in this situation, it's so far beyond that. Mr. Bennett's favoritism has 
the opportunity to save Lizzie from destitution, potentially, and just throw the rest of his children to the wind. I mean, if he is going to put in a good word for Lizzie and no one else, if that is going to be his priority, and he has all the power to make all the introductions, set up all the first impressions of his family, etc. And his aim is to save his favorite daughter and the rest of them just seem to do nothing but annoy him. I mean, what that means economically, what that means for the future of every single one of these people is, it's alarming. I also think this favoritism is a burden though, which we will see, Mm -hmm. right? She feels like she should be the one who should be able to convince Mr. Bennett to not let Lydia go to Brighton, for example, right? It makes her the third adult in the house, the stand in. And, you know, we meet Lizzie and she's 18 or so, but who knows how long she's been foisted into this role between these two ridiculous adults. So when we discussed Jane Eyre, we looked at that book through the lens of power and desire. And as you can tell, we're already talking about power a lot because that's what we like to talk about. But in thinking, <laughs> when thinking about Pride and Prejudice, desire didn't feel like quite the right fit. You know, it, it's not a tremendously desirous book. And it is a book that does have so much to say about love and about so many different types of love. And romantic love is certainly a part of that. But even Austen's conception of romantic love, I think, is a complicated one. And so instead of thinking about power and desire this time, we're going to be thinking about power and love and where power and love show up in conflict as they are no pun intended, married to each other in each chapter, and how each one of those concepts really propels the book and what Austin wants to tell us about the world as she sees it. Yeah. And I think that one of the things that we'll see, which I'm really excited to trace, is just the importance of sisterly love, right? And that is something that comes up again and again in Austin's novels, that The true love is the sisterly affection. And even between sisterly friends, you don't even need to be blood sisters, so to speak, to have that sort of sisterly love. Totally. I mean, in, in this chapter, right, I think that we see love or an absence of love twice, right? In this familial love, there is a genuine care for one another that is going on in this family, whether or not it is healthily or generously given, you know, there is love at the heart of this family. And the other is just the absence of love as far as how Mrs. Bennett is thinking about marriage. She's like, let's marry off one of the girls and forget loving him. They don't even have to like or know him. Like he is marriageable. And yet that is exactly how she loves her daughters. She's so concerned about their future that it's a hierarchy of needs and she sees the emergency coming. The narrator says it is the business of her life. That is an act of love because she knows how necessary it is. It's not for self-flattery. It's not so she can tell the girls at the club who's engaged. It's not so she can put the notice in the paper. It's because she doesn't want her beloved daughters to be destitute. And her husband's lack of concern for that situation, I think, is exactly his absence of love, as well as this different love that he has for Lizzie that he either doesn't feel or intentionally withholds from his other daughters. The lovingness of this marriage is definitely something that is curious to me. He's not cruel to her. He's not abusive to her. I think in several ways he tries, but also there are real moments, I think, of her reaching out to him and of him not reaching back. Well, she drives him crazy. (laughs) Yeah. And the one thing that he can really say in her favor is about her beauty. He clearly fell in love with her beauty and it appears to be a cautionary tale about what happens 
when one confuses love for a person's beauty with love for that whole person. I mean, I get his behavior in many ways, and they also seem like a lot of married couples in that way, at least married couples of a very different age, where you would just see people bicker all the time, and then once in a while they would remember how they danced at the Copa, and that was, to me, what marriage was (laughs) when I was growing up around my grandparents who adored each other. But, you know, there is like a certain exasperation that I always thought was inherent in marriage, which frankly may simply be cultural. Maybe this is just a far more culturally honest marriage in many ways than the marriage that we tend to get in in literature from this time period. How many exasperating wives and barely tolerant husbands do we tend to see? There's something that feels so intimate about that. And yet I wonder, is that exasperation and tolerance a form of love too? I don't know. We'll find out. Yeah. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. So next episode, Lauren, we are going to be reading chapters three and four. We meet Mr. Darcy. We go to a ball. Much is going to happen. And we finally get more of Lizzie's voice. And I find her absence in these first two chapters so frustrating. And I'm so hungry for her as a real presence. And finally, we'll get our fix. She's coming. She's coming. And Mr. Darcy will find her. Tolerable. So at the end of every episode, we are going to interview an expert about something related to the conversation that Lauren and I have had or the chapters that we have looked at. And today we're lucky enough that Dr. Tara Menon is willing to get on the phone with me. Those of you who listened to our last season of Hot and Bothered on air will remember Tara who came to talk to us about Jane Eyre, but today she's here to talk to us about Pride and Prejudice. Tara is an English professor at Harvard University, and her work centers around counting the words that different characters say in novels, who is named and who is unnamed, and really trying to quantify who has the power of words in novels, when and why. So I'm going to give Tara a call. 
Hi, Tara. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. I have so many questions for you, but I just want to start with any thoughts about who it is that is saying this opening line of Pride and Prejudice or like what that narrator's voice is? Are we supposed Mm -hmm. to think about it as Austin, as any number of things? I think that the first line establishes what we think of as something like the godlike authority of Jane Austen's narrative voice, right? It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a small fortune must be in want of a wife. A great fortune, not a small fortune. A great fortune. Yeah, I've diminished it already. <laughs> um, small compared to Darcy's. <laughs> yes. But I, there is obviously irony, which is the characteristic note in so much of Pride and Prejudice and Austen's fiction there, because of course it is the inverse that is true in the world of this novel, that in fact the women here are in want of husbands rather than the husbands in want of wives. But I think that one could say that there's a little bit of Mrs. Bennet creeping into that line, or rather at least the um, community's voice rather than just simply the authorial voice that is in that first line, that the irony is is partly playing on the fact that this is a held belief on the part of the community and people like Mrs. Bennett. I know that you're someone who pays a lot of attention to like when something is in quotes and when it isn't. Yes. And when things aren't in quotes in Pride and Prejudice, we have this godlike you know, authorial narrative voice, but Mm -hmm. it changes in tone so much, even just in these first few chapters, let alone throughout the book. Mm -hmm. How are we supposed to think of how, how much the narrative voice changes throughout the book? This is, I think, a central question in this novel. In fact, maybe the central question, which is, as I'm sure many of your readers know, Austen's great innovation in her fiction is a technique, a formal technique called free and direct discourse. And the magic of free and direct discourse is that it combines the thing that I think about a lot in my work, which is direct speech or direct discourse. So words that are imagined to be the exact words that are uttered by an individual character and something like the detachment of the third person narration. So sometimes it's very obvious in the novel, even when we're in the third person narrative sections of the novel, not the direct speech sections of the novel, which character's consciousness the narration is being filtered through. And sometimes it's much less obvious. And so part of the work of reading Austen's fiction is trying to figure out what is happening. All the while, the style sort of like carries you along and tries to stop you from doing the work actively of figuring it out. Oh, it's, she's so mean. <laughs> she is. She is so mean. And I think so <laughs> many people sort of underestimate how mean she is. Yeah. <laughs> she's tricking you all the time. All the time. Mrs. Bennett is not one of the main, main characters in the novel, right? She, I would say, is secondary. But her voice in terms of the work that you do is so dominant in this introduction to the novel. Yeah. Why is Austin introducing us to this world through Mrs. Bennett's eyes? Um, I will tell you two things about speech in this novel, which will be somehow indirectly an answer to your question. So the first thing is that in most narrative fiction, we would expect that the protagonist is the character that speaks the most number of words. This is very true in this novel. Elizabeth Bennet speaks 29% of the total amount of speech. But the character that speaks the second most is Mrs. Bennet. <gasps> And she speaks 13% of all of the words. And Darcy is third, and he speaks 8%. So he's almost a little bit of a distant third. And then there are a few characters, Jane, Mr. Collins, Mr. Bennett, who speak about also about eight, a little less than eight, but about the same amount that Darcy does. So that's fact number one. Actually, Mrs. Bennett is the second highest speaker in this novel. The other thing that I will tell you about Pride and Prejudice in speech is that Most novels in the 19th century have less speech at the beginning, and then they sort of plateau in the middle, and then they have a little bit less speech in the end. So it follows a sort of nice, typical arc. Pride and Prejudice almost inverts this arc 
exactly. So it starts with a lot of speech. It has a middle period that has not very much speech, and then it ends with a lot of speech. And for readers familiar with the novel, they will know that's partly because the middle part of this novel is a novel of interiority. It's a novel where we really get to know Elizabeth Bennet, where really the narration is engaging in that free and direct discourse that I spoke about earlier. But the beginning and end of the novel, in some ways, are Elizabeth in community. You know, the novel launches into speech. Yes, that famous first line is not direct speech, but almost the rest of that chapter is entirely speech. And so I think it's part of situating Elizabeth Bennet in in a family, in a community in which there's a lot of conversation and communication going on. That also makes so much sense because the middle of the novel is also where a lot of miscommunications are happening. And so it's so interesting that they're literally just not talking to one another, right? It's Lizzie makes the decision to not talk to her family about Wicca, right? Like there are a lot of decisions to not talk. Indeed, yeah. And and also the two characters who we think of as actually being in quite good communication at the beginning of the novel is Elizabeth and Jane are not in communication in the same way in the middle of the novel. I know we asked you about minor characters in Jane Eyre, and I'm wondering about the minor characters in Pride and Prejudice Mm -hmm. and how much they speak or don't speak. One of the things that we see in novels that are later in the 19th century is speech from very minor characters, unnamed characters, people like shopkeepers or milliners or waiters. In Austen's world, that basically never happens. The characters that speak, especially in direct speech in Austen's fiction, are almost universally known to other characters in the novel. This novel has only 25 characters that speak out loud. And of those, only two are unnamed. One of them is a butler who gets a line. And another is an unnamed girl at a ball who also gets one line. But it's important that both of those characters, even though they're not given first or last names, are known to the other characters The butler is known to the characters in Jane Austen's world. They know his name. We might not get that name, but he's not a stranger. And neither is the girl at the ball. No one's a stranger in this world. The great critic Raymond Williams, his line about country fiction is that they're made up of knowable communities. And Austen exemplifies this. Emma, in some ways, is probably the Austen novel that most exemplifies this. There are only 16 characters in Emma. Every single one of them is named, and every single one of them speaks to at least two other people. So it's a perfect, closed social network. Pride and Prejudice isn't quite as perfect, quite as closed, but it's still 25 people compared to a novel like a Dickens novel, which might have over 100 speaking characters. It's so interesting how few characters speak, given that we have so many balls and there's a frickin' militia in town. It is. So Tara, we are at the beginning of this journey. Is there anything that you think that we and our listeners should keep in mind as we read our way through this book that you and I agree is quite cruel to its readers? Is there something we should watch out for with the landmines that Austin sets out for us? One of the things I think is the most interesting elements of this novel is the way that Austen, speaking of her cruelty, manufactures emotions like contempt and disdain and dislike for her characters. And I think one of the main ways that she's able to do that so effectively is the way she uses, the way she deploys direct speech. So that can be by having an extremely verbose character, a character who speaks sentences upon sentences upon sentences without letting anyone else get a word in edgewise. But it can also be when characters speak repeatedly without letting a reply come back to them, for example. And so I think one of the things I would ask your listeners to pay attention to as they read through this novel is whenever they have a feeling that they really don't like a character, to think about what exactly Austin has done to make them feel that way. Yeah. (laughs) Including with Mrs. Bennett. Indeed. Who I'm a great apologist for. 
Yeah, Mr. Bennett's the real bad guy. Amen. Amen. (laughs) Well, Tara, thank you so much. It was a pleasure as always, and we're so grateful. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. You've been listening to Live from Pemberley from Hot and Bothered. We are a small show, so we really need your support to run. So if you can, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash hotandbotheredrompod. If you love the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We are a Not Sorry production. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman, and we are distributed by Acast. Thanks always to our Jane Level patrons, Baroness Elise Kenan Garatno of Unicornia, Viscountess Gretchen Sneegas of Breakfast Carbston, Knight Molly Reel of Worcestershire Sauce, The Countess of Kristen Hall, Dame Leah B of Pickleshire, Duchess Two Cats of Philofaxia, Dame Becky Boo of Tiara Landia, and Duchess Biddy Higgins of Bubble Bath. You are doing so much to make this show possible. Thanks to Tara Menon, Claudia Johnson, and Elsie Mitchie for talking to us. You will hear more from them throughout our season, you lucky ducks. Thanks always also to Lara Glass, Gabby Iori, AJ Yaramas, Julia Argi, Nikki Zoltan, Stephanie Paulsell, and all of our patrons.